0: Some of the greatest breaths you will ever take will be ones taken during moments of being at peace with yourself and acceptance for everything around you. But when you find some inner peace, it seems like something fragile that you need to protect from the world, something this world will destroy. Go out into the world and try to see a way where that inner peace can survive. And when you're looking for peace, it's easy to forget why. We're surrounded by chaos and anger and fear and sadness. It seems like the world is made for the ruthless and the cruel. Like if you don't fight to struggle to get ahead, then that person in rush hour traffic is going to force their way into your spot when you're trying to merge. So why bother, right? Why should we look inward? Why should we take off our armor and be our true selves when the world will chew us up and spit us out? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? But let's talk about what we're up to for a moment. This is more than just a podcast. We're part of a project I started last year when I was having a hard time and couldn't find honest stories of surviving life challenges like what I was going through. So we produce stories, videos, and audio programs like this to even out the image presented all around us of happy marriages and dream vacations. One day, we're gonna be the Wikipedia of things we tend to sweep under the rug. Our tagline is, if you believe what you see, you believe we look like our cherry-picked profile pictures we curate that our life is the polished story we present but our truth our quirky messy actual human experience is captivating and magnetic because we see our true selves in the story and right now we are 100 percent audience funded we rely on people who contribute a monthly amount no matter how small to see this project continue going this is what pays for my hundred dollar flights with 15-hour layovers and smoke-filled motel rooms all so i can do the interview in person because there's something that just won't come through if we do it over Skype. I would love to be able to buy groceries one day from the work I do on this project and be able to pay Meg, who besides writing and producing, fearlessly gets rejected 10 times a day so we can land some great guests. And up until now, these patrons have supported us with nothing in return, just to help us keep going. So with that said, I want to make a deal with you. Open up a web browser and go to patreon.com slash hellohuman. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash HelloHuman. And then listen to this audio program. Check out the website HelloHumans.co and see if there's something in there that you think is worth getting a chance to continue on. And if you really aren't in a place to contribute monetarily, write us a review on iTunes. It helps people discovering us gauge whether this is worth their time or not a huge special thank you to some very generous patrons the Diz Unplugged which is another podcast who supported us all about behind the scenes of Disneyland and Paul Williams gratitudeandtrust.com which is a great website and he's a patron who actually pays for all our hotel rooms he's also a guest on episode three so without further ado here is New York Times best-selling author and one of the great Buddhist teachers of our time Jack Kornfield All right. Hi, Jack. Hi, Sam. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And hosting us in your house. My mom said at one point that you were the only person that liked me <laughs> when I was uh, struggling in the, the dark times of my life. And so thank you for
1: that. She said she talked to you. and you're Oh, just, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I like people. <laughs> so and the dark times are often the most interesting they can be very hard and exceedingly painful and at times destructive and as you know self-destructive. And they're not the end of the story for most people. If you go through them with some modicum of attention or courage, even a little bit, and sure you get lost, then something that is indestructible starts to arise in you, that place that can't be taken away, that can't be battered, that can't be lost, um, becomes apparent to you. And you know that you can go through anything.
0: Yeah, I uh, almost every single asset is what I'd call it. Almost every th- single character asset I have is directly related to a really hard time in my life. I hate that that's the way I learn. I imagine there's some people that can learn the easier way. Um, yeah who are they? <laughs> but in, in in hindsight, it's really, it's really shaped who I am today.
1: So my teacher in the forest monasteries where I trained as a Buddhist monk years ago, he used to look at us and he'd say, hard times, easy times, where do you learn the most? You know, and he would just smile. He'd say, so are you here just to cruise through it? Or do you want to become the wise courageous compassionate being that you know is in there do you want that to come alive take a look so what were the what were the kind of hard things that you uh well addiction was
0: hard mostly because the the way i acted in addiction had major consequences whether it meant facing um the reality that i would lose my freedom i remember going to jail and i had a cellmate who was just there for the weekend. And so he was very much just, oh, I'm just going to wait till Monday. They're going to give me a fine. I'll be okay. And I was facing uh, trafficking, which the culmination of charges added up to potential 11 years. And I remember walking around a little cell. It was probably like five by eight and thinking how much I had taken that freedom for granted. I remember getting a pencil for the first, when they finally gave me a pencil after a day. And I was able to draw and write and just, I mean, you've never been more grateful for a golf pencil than in jail and and other things. I had a, a child when I was 19 with somebody who wasn't a good fit and uh, that caused a lot of pain, yeah. a lot of run-ins with danger. I was dangerous at one point to other people. Yeah, I feel like I have had my fair share of the extreme like the extremes on on both sides. I've had really high highs, but I've also had really
1: low lows. Well, as you talk, I feel, you know, I feel the suffering you've gone through. I can sort of empathize as you listen. It kind of resonates both for the kinds of trouble that I've been through. And when you're in the middle of it, how hard it is, really how hard it is. And to say, as I did in the beginning, that it's not the end of the story. Um, doesn't help a whole lot when you're in the middle, but it does bring a kind of freedom of spirit or redemption to know that even in the jail cell, you get your pencil and you can start to write, and you still have, you still have possibilities no matter what your circumstance. Um, when Nelson Mandela got out of twenty-seven years of Robben Island prison with so much magnanimity and generosity of spirit and uh, courage and love. He not only changed South Africa, but he changed the imagination of the world somehow. They can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. I've learned it in certain ways myself, both because I had the privilege of being around people like that, and also just because the hardest time in, times in my life that were sustained were when I was young, and I had some hard times since then, but they were pretty difficult. I came to learn that somehow you could get through it, and it wasn't the end of the story.
0: Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine who's going through something really tough, Mm -hmm. and I was telling him, I'm so glad that I continued to push through, because it showed me that as long as you keep going, it's something that you survived, as opposed to caving in or giving in and it just feels like when you've seen what you felt like in the moment was the end of the world or the end of the when you feel yeah when you feel like your world the end of your your world when a future (laughs) incident comes up it's not quite that anymore i had a pretty big scare recently in my love life where i had to wake up and realize i was complaining let's just I'll just be completely transparent. I was complaining a lot and I was totally unaware of it. And it was really getting frustrated to the people I love most in life. Unfortunately, it came to almost a breaking point and feeling like, wow, I'm going to lose these loved ones. And my heart went into fight or flight and it started beating really fast. And when I got off the phone, I think it's because of the other things I've been through. My heart started to return to normal really quickly and just remember... <sighs> yeah nice nice. as opposed to it being a nine-month ordeal well so to anyone who doesn't know who you are could you just give us the brief rundown of who
1: you are and how you got to where you are now it's always so funny that question who are you because who are you really is a spiritual being consciousness some gift that was born into life um for this incarnation with as each person does, with a kind of uniqueness and, and secret beauty that sometimes you forget but it's always in there. And then we have the roles and history, which we carry, but they're not they don't limit us any more than Nelson Mandela's time in prison um defined him, defined him in some ways, but he was so much bigger than that prison cell. Yeah. So yeah, I'm uh 72-year-old guy, product of the 60s, with a very painful family history. I had a father who was violent, abusive, mentally ill, paranoid, um, wife batterer, you know, the kind of um, situation where we would hold her breath, our breath, my three brothers and I, every time he came home, was he going to be violent or not? And grew up, you know, in a good, well-educated, suburban Jewish family. But it was kind of like living a secret at the same time people couldn't come over to our house because my father could get violent or abusive. Um, so my brothers and I somehow, each of us, we managed to find our ways to to get through it. I do remember getting to college. I went to Dartmouth and I remember calling my mom from the payphone in the basement of the dorm at one point, kind of partway through the fall of my freshman year. And I said, Mom, I said, we're not the only fucked up family. (laughs) There's a lot of other ones out there. I was shocked. But as you know, it's one thing to be in high school where you kind of are with your friends and so forth. But in college, you kind of get to know a whole new circle of people that you may never have known and you start in, in, in the dorm anyway start to swap tails and all of a sudden oh wow you know here's this person from that other part of the country or that other you know whole way of life and oh, l- l- listen to that one um then i realized that there wasn't such a thing as normal it was just us you know we're all we're all weird in our own wonderful and unique way so I was going to go to medical school. My father had been a biophysicist who worked in space medicine and taught in medical school and did all kinds of strange things beside that, including working for the military for a while, doing stuff. And um, partway through school, I took a class in Asian studies from this wonderful old professor who had come up from Harvard. And he, Dr. Wing Sit Chan, sometimes he would sit cross-legged and talk about Buddha and Lao Tzu and Confucius and the sages of the Orient. Um, Beautiful, well-spoken gentleman. And he said, yeah, in the Buddhist teachings, they say there's suffering in life, that no one is exempt. Um, And there are ways to deal with the suffering. There's ways to heal it personally. There's ways to not create it for yourself and others. There are causes, and there's an end to it. And my eyes kind of opened. I said, No now this is the kind of education I need. You know, okay, I can do math and I'm just coming from organic chemistry and, you know, all those other kind of history I can do. But what I really needed was education of my own heart and mind. So I switched. I majored in Asian studies and then it was during the Vietnam War. Um, I was a hippie. I was an anti war activist. I also came out to California for the summer of Love and spent some time dropping acid in and hate ashbury and all those kind of things one did in the sixties or one might have done I did them um, and uh then so as not to get drafted and go and kill people, I volunteered for the Peace Corps and asked them to send me to a Buddhist country seeking one of those great old Zen masters that you read about and like do those folks still exist. And so I was assigned to Thailand and I asked them to send me to the most remote place they could, which ended up being on the border of Laos and near Cambodia on the Mekong River in the sixties. And I worked on these tropical medicine teams and found through a friend that I met this great old Zen master, or he was a Buddhist master. Anyway, it wasn't Zen, but it was like that um, Buddhist tradition. And so I began to study with him and became a monk for some years. Um, and he had a great sense of humor. He was very lighthearted and also, a, a, a completely strict disciplinarian. He really wanted you to learn that to face whatever it was and not, you know, not turn away. I remember lying in my hut when I got really sick, we had these little huts in the forest and, um, where we'd live and then we'd come together for chanting or go out with our alms bowl. And oh. I was wretchedly sick, high fever, with malaria. And he came in <clears throat> and because I'd been in the Peace Corps, I learned the language pretty well. So he looked at me and he said, sick, huh? He's, he always, very very straightforward in So I said, yeah. He said, fever, huh? I said, yeah. He said, makes you want to go home and see your mother, doesn't it? I said, yeah. He said, this is suffering. This is the body suffering. You know, Buddhists teach that we have suffering of different kinds. He said, how are you going to handle it? He said, you could go home to your mother. He said, but it seems like it'll never end, right? I said, yeah. He said, we've all had it when we lived out in the jungle, especially. He said, now we got medicine, but in the old days, we just had to really live through it. I'll send the medicine monk over to give you something that'll take a couple of days. And they looked at me, said, you can do this. He can do it a little smile and walked off. And there was that spirit that, you know, he'd go with you. He'd been there and you could do it. So, yes, we had meditation where we'd sit up all night, you know, in the forest, which was kind of wild or go and chant in the charnel grounds and face death in certain ways. But a lot of it was very mundane and prosaic, endless boredom and, you know, long hours of meditation and um, and so forth. And those were as important as anything else. And we'd sit up all night with him and he'd be sitting there kind of cheerful and so forth. And I remember one night these villagers made a great big pot of hot coffee with lots of sugar in it. Remember, we're eating one meal a day that we collect kind of sparse food in our alms bowls in these villages, especially in the dry season. And I'm thinking, boy, I'm going to be able to meditate all night tonight on a big cup of hot, sweet coffee. Yeah. So it was there steaming. And he had an abbot that was a friend of his. And they were just sitting there chatting and talking away. And uh, we're all sitting there salivating. And he would sit quietly and meditate for a while. And he'd talk again all night long. And the coffee I knew was getting colder and colder. <laughs> um, and he would just kind of look at us once in a while. As we're all sitting there salivating, whatever, and then smile and go back to sitting in meditation or conversing. And he did it um, not to be cruel or unkind. He wanted you to realize that you could sit and be in present for your joys and the beauty of the life that you lived. Um, the unbearable beauty of it, so wonderful, and your fears and your attachments and your confusion that he would say you become the witness of it, the the loving awareness, the mindfulness that can see it all without being so caught in it. He said, there is your place of freedom. So after the monastery, I came back um, to the U.S. and uh, didn't know what else to do, so I went back to graduate school because I'd been a student, right? And, um, in psychology, I want to figure out what happened to me basically. And, you know, realize that the practices of compassion and forgiveness that I'd learned in the monastery coming to terms with my family, the practice of steady attention, um, that there were certain, um, parallels and things to learn from Western psychology that were a good complement to that. And then I met some friends who'd been also training in Asia we were asked to teach. Can you? T- I started to teach at the first Buddhist university, Naropa University, started by a Tibetan mama, Chogyam Trungpa. Um, Could you teach us what you learned? So we began to teach, and now it's 44 years later. I've been teaching around the world, had wonderful colleagues, started a couple of the biggest meditation centers in America, written a bunch of books. And mostly, I've just been teaching that loving spirit and that kind of inner freedom that is our birthright and reminding people, here's how you can learn this for yourself.
0: In your book, I love when the spiritual and the old world and the, the simplicity and inner focus meet New York City. That's one of my favorite transitions. But I, I, you did mention something that I wanted to touch on, which is really relevant for me and me as a father, is boredom. I feel like with such great content, including this podcast, coming out all the time. It's really easy to get caught in uh, a fear of boredom or not doing anything. You run retreats with no electronics where I imagine boredom plays a part, even if it's passive boredom. Um,
1: What's your relationship? That's one of the great gifts of these deeper trainings in meditation that really anybody can do. It's, Um, There's all kinds of wonderful things online, of ways to train yourself, but much better is to go to a retreat for a time, come to a place like Spirit Rock, where I teach now and other places like it, because you sit, and what starts to happen as you quiet yourself, or as you put away your devices, and you put away your responsibilities, is then you're there with yourself. It's you painful, Well, yeah. your, your mom, Annie Lamott, dear friend and wonderful writer, writer, says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone, <laughs> you know. So you're there with other people. Um, it's painful. But what it is, actually, is that you there's a layer that you're facing of the things that keep you from being true to yourself, um, comfortable with yourself, compassionate with yourself, all those things. Um, and so boredom comes, restlessness comes, self judgment comes. Everybody experiences that frustration. I can't do this right. Um, I don't want to be with myself. I want to be distracted. Those are really interesting moments. What is it that's going on in the moment that you don't want to be with yourself? Does your body hurt and you don't know how to tend your pain kindly so you keep running away or addicting yourself or distracting? Is there unfinished business of your heart? Is there grief and tears that you haven't let yourself feel and you keep yourself distracted and busy so you don't have to feel it? Or is it start to get quiet and it's so unfamiliar that you're bored? Like, what is this? Oh, this is boredom. I'm so restless. And then the instruction that we give is as if to bow to it, to name it with loving awareness and acknowledge, oh, this is boredom. What does this feel like? And you can name it very softly, Bored, Bored. Um, And then notice as an explorer, as a discoverer, what happens when you sit with the boredom? What does your body feel like? Or what does the body feel like when you're restless? What stories does it tell? I'll never get out of this, life doesn't mean anything, I have too many important things to do, I can't take the time to be myself. And because you can't tolerate your boredom or your restlessness, As soon as it happens at home, what do you do? You open the refrigerator or you go online because you can't be with yourself. So you name it, bored, 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 bored. I feel like this is going to go on forever. Story, story, you sort of acknowledge that. I hate this boredom, hating, hating. And you watch that state, then it quiets down. Okay, I'm not doing too badly. Okay, quieting, quieting. Then it rears up again. Yeah, but I can't stand this. And this is overwhelming, and you know, overwhelming, overwhelming. You become the witness of it. And after a while, the boredom or restlessness, or the fear, the anxiety that comes, fear, fear, you begin to name it and know it. It starts to lose its power over you. Because it's like you've looked it in the eye. You've sat down and taken tea with it. You said, yeah, I know you. Now, sometimes it gets really overwhelming. And you say, I can't, I'm so bored, I'm so restless, I don't know what to do. And then the instruction we give is, you could be the first person with your courage, you could be the first person to die of boredom on this retreat. Mm -hmm. Let it kill you. Just sort of open your hands and your body and say, all right, I can't, I'm, I'm gonna die of boredom, I'm gonna die of restlessness. So then, bored, bored, I hate this, hating, hating, I feel like I'm dying, 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 dying. You're sort of naming this gently as you let it unfold, dying, dying. And the thing is that the moment you let yourself die of boredom or restlessness, or whatever it is that you surrender to it, it loses its power over you. Because most of the problem is actually your resistance to it. The more you hate it or run from it, the bigger it gets. And when you say, all right, take me, I'll be the first person in Fairfax, California to die of boredom in January of 2018, dying, dying. And then the mind has no pride. You've been dying, dying for a while and thinks, like, gee, I wonder what I'm going to get for lunch, you know, because it will do that too. And then you realize, oh, this isn't as scary or as bad as I thought. Now, what also comes for people as they let themselves have a bit of time to tend, them, tend their own hearts um, is um, what's called the tears of the way that we also, along with immense, the immense, unbearable beauty of life, we carry the ocean of tears. And some of it is the trauma or grief or things that we've lost that we haven't let ourselves weep about, you know, or the the losses or pains or frustrations that aren't even quite conscious that we carry. And so to be able to sit and let yourself also weep becomes... It tenderizes the heart and it gives you a different kind of courage because then when your buddies or your friends or your girlfriends or whoever it is are in trouble, you don't run away. You're not so afraid. You can say, oh, yeah, I know this, too. Yeah, yeah, we can we can go through this. So there's an answer for you about boredom that at least gives people who are listening something to uh, explore. I was thinking about the
0: monastery and how it was there was built-in reward to doing this inner search and built-in reward to practicing the principles you were learning in day to day and interactions with other humans. And then when you came to New York, I'm I'm thinking of all the people who are seekers, like myself. And so we we collect all this information and then when it comes to there's a big difference between knowing and doing like when i do something wrong i generally knew i shouldn't do that and so when you started coming back into the the western world and you're met with new york which is a wild city and uh you know far from perfect as the world isn't but it's in perfectly
1: your, imperfect
0: yeah how like when the rubber meets the road, what were the what were the big moments that you remember where you knew the answer, but then things didn't quite go according to that self knowledge and coming back to it?
1: Oh, that happens all the time. I mean, especially then the most um, beloved poet in Japan was an old Zen poet named Ryokan, Um, And he writes uh, a line that goes, last year, a foolish monk, this year, no change. (laughs) And there's so much kind of humor and mercy and humanity in it. um, Because in the end, the game isn't to perfect our personality. We have a personality and they're all kind of weird when you look at them. Or we have a body and it's also kind of weird. It's just the whole thing, the whole human incarnation is an amazing thing. It's not so much to perfect them, personality or the body, but it's, if anything, to perfect our love. And love is um, like New York City. You got to love it. I mean, it's wildly imperfect. And this is called, you know, there's a certain love of, of imperfection that um, in the Japanese Zen tradition, if you have a old beautiful handmade cup that's part of a tea ceremony and it falls. You've had it for years and once it falls and gets cracked and it's repaired, that's considered more beautiful in some way as the line from Leonard Cohen, the cracks are where the light gets in. Um, so there I was back in New York and that's sort of the theoretical part or back in Boston, actually, mostly. And um coming out of the monastery with all these good intentions and training, how to be more forgiving kind. Then I got into a, you know, relationship with this woman. And, um, that was tough. I'll tell you, sitting on my butt in the forest, in the charnel ground, I could do that. Right. Hey, it was sort of like guys going off to war or something like that. And there I was, I was actually in war zone part of the time and kind of not a lot of battles around, but, um, and Thailand, Laos and places, you know, But um, that's nothing compared to intimacy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And part of what happened was that as I got quiet uh, in the monastery, uh, things settled down. I felt much more balanced, able to handle difficulties. When I came back, um, all those old patterns um, that had been in a certain way put aside because I wasn't in an intimate relationship, they all got activated again. Um, and the horror of it was that I could see them all the more clearly, but my own insecurity, my own neediness, my own, you know, frustrations and judgments and stuff, they were like, there big time. And it actually took some considerable work. Um, it was as if that, what I'd done was a, was a, A training to allow me to begin to become more conscious in relationship. Um, I like to say that going on a retreat uh, or going off to do some inner training is the first half of the training, breathing in and then there's the breathing out. And every wise culture knows that it's helpful to go in the mountains. Or walk by the ocean, or go out in the desert, or spend some time coming into yourself, so you feel connected and deal with your own wounds and your own longings, and somehow come, come get more centered in knowing and caring for yourself from a deep place of understanding. But then you got to come back from the desert, you know. And one of the things that's you know interesting in kind of the archetypal way is that even Buddha and Jesus had trouble when they went back to their families. You know, there's a reason they call it nuclear family (laughs) and the same for intimate relationships because we're vulnerable and our deepest hopes and longings, just like you talked about in that in your marriage or when you first started, you had all these ideals and they were all on the table. They weren't so conscious and I did the same thing. And, um, So learning how to navigate that. Now, you know, I'm in a second marriage. My first marriage lasted 30 years. And I'm a loyal kind of person. I would have stayed married for my whole life, like you sound like you want it to be. But it takes two. And my ex, at some point, she just didn't want to stay married. You know, I have a big life. I travel a lot. I do lots of writing, speaking, teaching and and all of those things. And she's a very quiet and private person. And it was just the wrong thing. So, um, there was a, the divorce part was very painful. Some time went by and then I started to look around to see who I wanted to be with. Cause I love being in relationship and fell in love with a woman I'd known for 44 years since the early days. who was someone that I teach with on occasion and, um, we started to spend more time together. Now we got married a couple of years ago. We're very happy, Trudy. Um, but at one point I got really miffed at her cause she said, I want to go do this and this thing, whatever it was. And I arranged tickets and try to arrange all the, do all the things that, that I'd like to do in some way to make something happen. And then a little while later she said, you know, I don't think I want to do that. And I said, but, 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 you said, and I'm I'm invested, and I, and I, you know, and I, and she took a breath and she looked at me and she said, you know, Jack, she said, women change their minds. And it was a, it was like, ding, this little light went off. There was something revelatory about it. And I said, oh, you know, I was attached to you being the way, you know, constant and not changing. And it's not just women that change their minds. And by the way, I don't mean to be sexist about it, but that's what she said. It was beautiful in the moment, and I realized, oh, here's the next lesson to learn: that it's not about fixing a view of how somebody's supposed to be, but it's about letting them be themselves and listening in some loving way. And then it's not so much a security-packed relationship, which in early years I needed um, because I was insecure and I wanted someone there and it's um, it's more a relationship of, I don't know, appreciation, even admiration, and, and then from with that comes a kind of tenderness and care. That may you be the best you that you can. May you blossom, you know, because you're not going to be somebody else, and you're not going to be somebody different for me. So those early lessons were actually um, hard, fights, losses, ends of relationships. Um, I was doing what we all do is like braille, trying to figure out how do we get close to somebody. And, you know, and they're so different than we are. Everybody's always different. And how do we do that and be really vulnerable and open and support each other and not get so triggered?
0: Yeah, relationships are one one of the greatest things about being human and also one of the hardest things because... Relationships put a magnifying glass on all your character defects. As that's the language I use. But all, all the the bad habits and behaviors, and it's easiest to be the meanest to the people closest to you, um, because you feel like they'll stick around. Yeah, it's it's the safest place. It's the safest place.
1: But you don't want to do it, as you said. Something in there generally goes if you're even. A little shred of consciousness. Ew, I'm sorry I did that again, but there we are. It all rose up out of me. And that's why it's really helpful to have done some inner training. And it can be in meditation, which is really great. It also can be in the 12 step work where you really look at yourself in a deep way. It can be really helpful to have therapy in some good fashion, not because you're, you know, there's something wrong with you and, you know, you need a diagnosis, but because there's something beautiful in you that, and, and courageous and, and, um, gifted by your humanity that you really want to be able to bring out and this other stuff gets in the way. Yeah. I think there's a, a huge difference,
0: which always gets muddied for me between wanting to change and wanting to grow. And uh, one of our one of our guests who um, his life's work, his purpose, uh, Mm -hmm. said, you know, like, I believe that you are an acorn and you're going to grow into an oak. And so when I think of change, it's like, well, I kind of want to be a walnut, Mm -hmm. you know, I kind of want to be a walnut tree rather than I want to be the best oak I can. Mm and wanting to evolve and i think it's a, it's a it's a trap people i it, know uh, it's a trap i I'll just speak for myself can fall into is like wanting to change
1: which is well, wanting to change who you are and not remembering that who you are is really consciousness itself spirit that came into this body that's beautiful you know and then you inhabit this personality and sure you can work with it to let the best of it come out, but that we have so much self-judgment. For me, um, there's a kind of Buddhist equivalent to the language of character defects, um, which might be a 12-step language or something of, you know, the defilements of the heart and stuff. Language doesn't do it for me, and I've changed the language a lot over the years because what I discovered early on in teaching is how much self-judgment there is and how much self-loathing and how much shame there is that people carry. And then they get into a self-improvement game in which one part of them says, Ew, I'm no good, and i got to make myself better. And you meditate, and your meditation becomes all about criticizing yourself, or you go to the program, and it's all about criticizing you. you know. And that is not the answer.
0: How do you approach? The
1: answer is love. The answer is there's really only one answer in that regard. My dear friend Ramdas, author, be here now, and kind of one of the icons of our that 1960s generation. Um, after he was in India for a time with his guru named Kuroli Baba, some years of doing yoga and meditation and, and devotional practice and all kinds of inner trainings and so forth really changed him a lot. And his guru said, all right, it's time to go back and you know, teach some other people, pass this on. And Ram Dass said, I'm just beginning. I feel too impure. I see all the, what you would call character flaws, you know, um, all the, I, he said, I just feel, I mean, I'm so imperfect. How could I be like you and, you know, help other people? And his guru got up off the bench where he sat and he took a long time. He stood up. Peered at Ramdas from feet, you know, to the middle, to the top, to his mouth and eyes and face and head. Um, and then he walked around the side and the back and he looked him over up and down very slowly and then sat back down and looked him in the eye and said, I see no imperfections. And in India, it's called the, the glance of mercy. It's that moment when you have a teacher, you know, she or he looks at you. Uh, with a kind of purity of love that says, you're a worthy human being. You were born worthy and you are. This other stuff is like on on the surface. And yes, you suffer if you don't understand how to navigate it, but it's not who you are. So in the years, decades of teaching now, I really have emphasized self-compassion. And when when you can hold yourself with tenderness, when you can forgive yourself, then you become able to forgive others when you're able to see your judging mind and say, oh, there's the judging mind, thank you for your opinion, I know you're trying to protect me, um, but I'm okay for now, thank you, and not buy into it. Because if you sit there and say, stop judging, I hate my judging mind, I wish I wasn't so judgmental, and what's that, and you get more of it. You say, oh yeah, that's just the judging mind, You know, that's the frightened mind. Our whole current um, media and, it, Political environment uh, um, in all different sides um, engenders fear. Mm -hmm. You know, and the terrorism of the world, okay, you have to be afraid. And one of the most kind of prescient commentators about this 100 years ago, H.L. Mencken, a very famous, said, You know, a lot of um, what you hear in the news and leaders is trying to frighten you. And us versus them. All us versus them, and from all different sides. Um, so that you'll, you know, turn toward them to save you, you know, and the fears that they, um, that you hear a lot of them, most of them aren't true. They simply are not true. Um, but we have this fight, flight, or freeze that you mentioned. We're wired to look for danger Mm -hmm. and it's what lets us survive. You know, you've got to look for the snakes in the bush and things like that. And so a thousand great things can happen in a day. And in the course of this conversation, there are a billion acts of goodness that happen on this planet. People smiling at one another, offering somebody else food, stopping at a red light so you can go through the green light, you know, acknowledging a a billion acts of kindness in a very short time. What makes the news the scary ones? Yeah, because it's, 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 So when you look with wisdom and you start with yourself, there comes a tenderness and a, you know, it's as if you can hold your heart, you can hold those thoughts of guilt or shame and so forth and say, yeah, this is part of, you know, being human. Every human being carries it. It's common to us all, but it's not who I am, not who we really are. And when you can see yourself with that kind of tenderness, hold yourself, then all kinds of things change it's really what spiritual freedom is about it's not some great magnificent state all those come too and they're very beautiful but they come and go Um, what's magnificent is being alive with love
0: yeah one of the one of the most powerful moments for me was going up to the the santa rosa fires Mm -hmm. in the wake of disaster you can see How much of what you thought the world was is story. And when it breaks down like in a disaster and the fabric is torn, Mm -hmm. nobody at the dinner tables where we were serving food was a Republican or a Democrat that day. They were people who either lost their house or didn't know if they lost their house. And there were people eating together and there was no tribes.
1: We were in it together.
0: Yeah. It was just one group which is unfortunate that sometimes that's what it takes and i imagine that a lot of people went back to that life but that brief moment to to see how active the mind is to create narratives and to to label almost things as reality that aren't necessary yeah, and they're just stories they're
1: just stories they're just the stories we impose it's that, you know what you say is very moving and i'm sure it was to be at those tables And one of the things that can help people when there are times of emergency, and because we now have the news, 24-hour news feed from all around the world, there's the hurricane, there's the earthquake, there's the fire, and so forth, is instead of focusing primarily on the disaster, and of course, you need to acknowledge it, look for the helpers. There's the hurricane, and all of a sudden, there's thousands of people pouring in the folks with the airboats coming from Florida and, and um, Mississippi, you know, who, who came all the way over to Louisiana where the hurricane was and said, yeah, we got the boats, we're going to go in, we'll get the, we'll rescue the people and the animals. That's what we're for. And you start to see the good hearts of people pouring in everywhere. Um, and it gives you a different view of humanity and who we are. How do you, I, I've always,
0: uh, I'm realizing sitting here, I've always approached change from the label, which I don't even want to use anymore, which is like defect, (laughs) right? Defect. Yeah. Uh, like I have to change. I need to change. And you, you, uh, you countered me with a place of compassion and love. And so in the practical sense, where does, say, I have no idea, but say you have this bad habit of every time Trudy does something completely unexpected, you start going into cranky, this is not, Mm -hmm. this screws up my plans. Mm -hmm. Where does it go from, wow, it really doesn't, you know, a year from now, I won't remember that this was so annoying to me. And where does the, the practical application of love meet? I don't want to act this way in the world. This is not the partner I want to be, or the friend I want to be, or employee I want to be.
1: This is why it's really helpful to have a bit of training in attention and mindfulness and loving awareness and compassion. There's so many ways to do it. I have a program online called Mindfulness Daily, which is 15 minutes a day for 40 days. And you learn all these skills and you can develop them. And then what you start to see is, um, oh, these thoughts don't have my best interest in mind. (laughs) They come in and you just see it without a lot of judgment. Oh, they're trying to protect me, but they actually don't have the best interest, my best interest in mind in the long run. So then you can bow down and say, thank you for your opinion or thank you for trying to help me. I'm okay now. I don't have to. And there's a gap that starts to grow between. Um, habits that will arise and the loving awareness that says, oh, there's that habit. And the gap is, hmm, I wonder if I should act that out or not. Nah, I think I'll pass on it today. Um, and that is your freedom. That is and the, the the last book that I wrote, which came out this year is called No Time Like the Present, Finding Freedom, Joy, um, Just Where You Are. That's the premise of the book, but it's really the culmination of what I've learned, and perhaps what everybody learns in the long term of wisdom, that you get to actually choose your spirit, and it, it helps to have. It's like training wheels to do a bit of meditation and you know do some inner work, so you realize, oh yeah, I can do this too. People have been doing this for for thousands of years. You have the capacity not to be completely hijacked by your amygdala and by the sort of reptilian brain it comes online you say yeah yeah I, I know you um thank you um and the heart says it's from the reptilian brain you move to the heart you just says yeah that's okay thank you you know i'm trying to protect me ah it's okay i'd rather rest in love thank you
0: correct me if i'm wrong my mind is is going right now but my mind's uh almost sideways because i feel like it's such a different correct me if i'm wrong if i if i'm hearing this right is you believe in this
1: spirit that's in all of us and it's what we are we're consciousness (laughs) we're not just this you you're definitely not all the big macs and you know fries and kale that you eat you're not the food so you're not your body that's very clear so when keep, it, you keep going with your question
0: yeah when it comes to change which is something I'm yeah. a, I'm, I'm always interested in yeah um growing or be, being a, a better partner better friend mm-hmm. or better s- servant to myself mm-hmm. and to the world at large I'm getting the feeling that you don't feel like it's um necessarily changing behaviors as much as it's seeing that those aren't behaviors of what's truly inside of you. And so rather than the way I've been framing it, which is change, 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 you're more, it feels like you're saying, no, it's not change. It's recognizing what's actually you rather than, you know, that the the layers you've added uh, of bad habits aren't actually something that needs to be changed. It's something that wasn't there
1: and doesn't, And you can step out of it. That's exactly right. Um, And it's liberating to see that. In the same way, if you look in the mirror, you'll notice you've aged. I mean, at my age, you know, fur on the top is gone. You get loose fur in some places and it grows in other places. Um, But there's, you know, your skin gets wrinkly or blotched or, you know, whatever, whatever age you are, you notice how your body's changed, right? But the weird thing is, you don't necessarily feel older. Do you know that experience, even at your age? You kind of look in the mirror and, oh yeah. A lot of people have it anyway.
0: I mean, yeah, no, I oft, when people ask me my age, I'm often surprised at my answer. Uh, yeah, which is? It, well, it's 28, but it doesn't yeah. feel like 28. You don't, you don't feel it, no. Yeah. And
1: that's because when you look at your body, your body exists in time. And it's a little infant and a child and a adolescent and then a young adult, and gets to be a full adult, and then goes on from there and eventually an old person and and dies. But the person looking in the mirror is not the body; it's consciousness, it's saying "hmm." wonder how old sam's doing at 28 how does he look look at his beard you know look at that hairdo look at the tats he's got and so forth he's been through a lot he's you know he's suffered some he's had some great successes there he is that is the consciousness that's the spirit and you know it's not far away um in its essence um there is therein lies freedom it's not that you have consciousness you are that. And then from that, from understanding understand that, then freedom of heart opens up.
0: I, I could have been reading this in the way I wanted to read this, but I thought it was interesting to start diving into a well-known Buddhist work and to see the words war and warrior pop up, which is, uh, I mean, the warrior is an archetype I love because mm-hmm. it's a powerful, mm-hmm. actionable archetype. I was curious about where you saw that vigor and resilience and strength of a warrior
1: working into a peaceful and balanced life. I like to think of it really as courage. You know, there's the courage to strike out and go to war. And there's also the courage to stop the war. And sometimes that actually takes more courage, courage to be true to yourself. So when Martin Luther King stood up after his church was bombed, child kids, four children, little girls were killed in the bombing. and The church was destroyed. Um, imagine if that happened to your church and the children were killed. And he said, um, we will uh, meet your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience follow your unjust laws and we will carry on. And we will soon wear you down by our capacity to love. Talk about a warrior. Mm-hmm. Talk about somebody who's unafraid to be true to their heart and true to themselves, no matter what happens. There's a tremendous courage in each of us. Um, and to empower one's heart and one's goodness is the game, to remember that you carry that. Um, and, you know, whether it's in your family or community or the things that you care about in the world and the injustices and things like that. We need people who are courageous, whether you want to use the image of warrior is fine, who are unafraid to stand up and a person of conscience as Lewis Mumford said, never needs the weapons of weapons, but they may need bail, you know, that, um, you're just unafraid to whether it's the world around you, or whether it's staying present for the things you care about and the people you love. That's, now there's a battle, if you will, that's worth walking onto that battlefield like Martin Luther King and saying, we're here and you're, you're not gonna move us. You're not gonna take us off.
0: I'm not a fearless person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a lot of fear. I hang on to a quote by a World War II ace fighter pilot, like back in the dogfighting days. Mm-hmm. And he said, "Without fear, you can't have courage. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not afraid, you're not courageous." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes. Yes. I was wondering where, um, where you meet fear and go and and go from letting fear dictate the course of your actions to letting fear or overcoming fear or uh,
1: however you do. Well, there's it. a lot of intelligence in even how you ask it. You know, because it's there. Human incarnation is like this. Fear is built in. It's a survival mechanism. You know, sometimes I like to uh, say fear is like one of those little lights on the dashboard. When fear comes, what it's really saying is about to grow, about to grow, (laughs) like it or not, if you're willing to turn toward it. Um, So the point isn't that you shouldn't be afraid. Obviously, we all have fear that come. But how do you meet it? And then how do you live from it? And to be able to turn toward it and say, oh, this is fear. It's trying to protect me. It believes that um, bad things will happen. You know what Mark Twain wrote? He said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. <laughs> I haven't heard that. And fear is that. fear. Uh, I mean, there's legitimate concerns and fears, but, you know, some huge percentage of the fears that we have are what you described before, are stories. So you see this story, and because you learn how to be present, you feel your palms get sweaty and your breath stop, and you say, oh, fear. And if you pay attention to it with mindfulness, with loving awareness, after 50 or 60 or 70, at some point you say, oh, fear, I know you. You invite it for tea, okay, we're going to be afraid when we do this. How interesting. And it loses some of its hold over you. And then you become wise because you can then see, does this fear have something that's important to pay attention to protecting you or others? And that's information. Or is this a Mark Twain fear? Like most of them are, you know, thank you for the story. That's a really good one. And um, off we go. Yeah. There's a
0: fear like uh, the hair is standing on the back of your neck because there's a lion in the bush. And then there's the fear that they're, might be a line in the bush my favorite favorite line of i think the path with heart which was the book i really dove into was you talked a lot about mortality Mm -hmm. which is always it's been on my mind i feel like from too early of an age and it is a great factor in my life in terms of i mean the reason why i do a lot of the stuff i do but the line i cling to i mean i wouldn't be surprised if there's a tattoo on me is the that and this is paraphrasing, but life is the dance between birth and death. Mm. And I loved the way that was phrased. And I was wondering, in your opinion, for your own self, not necessarily universally applied, but for your own self, what is the dance dance worth dancing? What is the good dance the way you want to spend? What a beautiful
1: question. What a beautiful question. And it really speaks to the title of that book, which comes from a passage from Carlos Castaneda, the teachings of Don Juan, the Yaqui Shaman, where he said, if the path has, heart, it's, has a heart, it's good. If it doesn't, it has no use. And so I can't give you an answer for you, Sam, or for someone who's listening. But what I can say is that you know, you can listen to your heart. Each of us is born with certain gifts you know, maybe the gift of language, you know, maybe the gift of caring, um, maybe the gift of planting a garden or starting a conscious business or um, making a piece of art. Um, and in the West African tradition of the Dagara people, my friend Malidoma Somme, who's a shaman and medicine man, um, who also has a couple of PhDs, one from the Sorbonne and an eloquent fellow, um, He said uh, in the Dagara people, um, we believe that every child is born with a certain cargo. And I love this metaphor because they're the cargo ships that ply the rivers of West Africa. So it's very, you know, of Burkina Faso where he's from other places. And he said, and your job is to honor your cargo and deliver it in this life. Wow. And so I can't answer your question. Um, only you can do that. And that's why it's worthwhile to quiet the mind and listen to the heart. And it's not about pleasure. You know, you can do without seeking one pleasure after another, because even after a while, even that grows old. It's really about something deeper. It's about being true to yourself and giving yourself to the world. And, you know, in these times, where things at times can appear really difficult. Um, My friend, Wes Nisker, who's a wonderful teacher and scoop Nisker, great radio journalist, went to interview Gary Snyder. Gary Snyder is now in his 80s, Pulitzer Prize winning poet, one of the fathers of modern environmental movement, wrote Earth household decades ago. And he said, Gary, Global warming, loss of species, rising oceans, environmental destruction. What do you have to say to us at this point after 50 years of teaching about this? And Gary looked back at he said, don't feel guilty. He said, if you feel guilty and you or you try to fix it out of fear or anger, you're just contributing to the states of consciousness that made it worse. If you're going to save it, save it because you love it say, because it really matters, because it's a part of you that matters. As Mother Teresa says, the problem with us is we draw our family circle too small. And this is your family, you know, the the rainforests are your family. And the air you breathe, dusted, came over the Pacific Ocean and dusted the tops of Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa, you know. It also dusted the Fukushima nuclear reactor. And now you get to breathe that air. It's us, baby. And so if you're going to save it, save it because you love it. And that's a very different power. And uh, then you start to listen and say, what is my gift? Because you can't save the whole world, but you can reach out and mend the part you can touch. You can plant the seeds that you have to offer. You can raise a conscious child. You know, you can stand up for justice. You can make a work of art or run, as I said, run a conscious business or a school or whatever it happens to be, um, because it's your gift to the world. Wow. Okay. So no, that's the tattoo. (laughs) It's
0: honor your cargo and deliver it. So when it comes to that, when it comes to doing your life's work, you are in your own life's work, not just in teaching, but I'm thinking about writing the deliverables. Um, You're prolific. You write a lot. And so I was wondering a lot of times, most times when I um, sit down to do my work, it's hard. It's hard to sit down and do it. And so I was wondering how you frame sitting down and writing or sitting down and doing the work to deliver the cargo, how you keep it going. Because obviously you've seen 20 plus books, right? 16. 16 books to the end. A lot of books. A lot of books. Yeah. And so I was wondering
1: how you... You know, some people love to write. Sometimes I like it. A lot of times I don't like it that much. It's hard, but I love having written. <laughs> and I, and there are things that I've learned that touch me, that meant so much to me, and I want to share them. And so I'm willing to sit down just like in other artists. You know, you you have experiences and you're a human being and you want to... Do the cave painting for the other people who live in your cave. You you know you want to plant that garden and you know in the yard for yourself, but also all your neighbors get to see that garden grow. There are things in us um, that want to come out, And, and discipline and suffering at times, you know, and struggle and so forth. That's anybody worth their metal goes through hard times to do anything worthwhile. I mean. It doesn't even need self-pity about that. It's just the way it is, you know? So you do it. And some days it's easy and some days it's hard. And some days you skip it because it's too hard and that's fine. <laughs> and it comes out and you say, okay, now I'm ready again. It's, yeah, not a lot of judgment about it. And, but it's, yeah. The
0: way I like to end this is, and I've always, I'm always trying to reframe the question, but so if mankind was completely starting from scratch and we had lost mm-hmm. all the knowledge of the past, but there was a message you could send to these people about to build again. What would your key insight into what you think they needed to know be?
1: What a great question. So what would the message to humankind? Mm. You have within you the possibility of creating a truly loving community and society. Listen for that and act upon it. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you too, Sam.
0: And that's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, become a patron, patreon.com slash hello human, P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash hello human. Leave us a review on iTunes and please spread the word. Let's keep this thing going. All right. I hope you have a great day. And remember, be yourself. Honor your cargo. Goodbye, everybody.